Here we are, Greg, in Cortina. We're going to get to why we're here in just a moment. But I was intrigued on the journey here as to the state of your playlist. You didn't know where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. you, you have a deep and I would say mostly secret obsession, I think it's fair to say, with NSYNC. Obsession, because that's where you're going. It's not NSYNC, it's just boy bands in general. Oh, right. Really. It was, yeah, yeah the, I have, a, I have a, a deep knowledge. I used to secretly listen when I was a bit younger. I used to hide behind other things, be that some hip-hop and rap and some house music, whatever else. But I obviously liked a bit of, bit of boy band. We're going through a hierarchy. Hang of... on, you were the one, I, I think we need to start this. You were the one that was very keen to listen to boy bands. It just so happens that <laughs> I had it on my phone. So you initiated yes. this. But because I thought, oh, random. And I actually did it because I thought it might annoy you. And I thought your musical taste might be quite different. And Pete as well. And Pete, the producer. But you two then started to discuss how it was bringing you back to yeah. your school discos. Yeah. And times gone by when you were reprobate of a teenager yeah what's oh, your favorite were... nsync song um the thing is there's so many good ones <laughs> it's very difficult it to is. put my finger on just one um i don't know maybe tearing up my heart's pretty good i one. do like that you're giving this proper uh, consideration no i am i mean the things, these things are important though like nobody cares <laughs> your, your, your boy band picks i mean they're important they are people they care. are though people, there's people at home listening now that are going I love a boy band. Mm. What is his favourite? Backstreet Boys. Backstreet Boys for me. Backstreet's back. All right. Don't do that again. Um, <laughs> no, but I think Backstreet Boys are probably Everybody better. Is. You would have done the it's dance. Not, it's, well. not, it's not karaoke with all I know, that. which is a shame. I will get to why we're here in a moment, but mentioning karaoke also brings me to a fun fact about you from your Wikipedia. We're not sure if it's still on your Wikipedia, but according to Wikipedia, you're a big karaoke fan, Massive Greg. fan, apparently, mm. yeah. Um, I have never sung karaoke <laughs> in my life. For some reason, people, and I still get, people ask me about it. And actually, if I go on certain panel shows and things, they go, oh, we thought, we thought we'd ask you about karaoke. <laughs> I know nothing about that. Never done it. I've, I've, I've once weirdly ended up in a karaoke bar in a bit of like a dungeon in, in central London. I'm not sure how I ended up there. It was on birthday. But we walked in. It felt a bit weird and we left again because I'm not sure it was oh. just a karaoke bar. Um, so that's the closest I've ever been to karaoke. No, nothing about that it. That makes me sad. I feel like I, you've I'm missed out. So if I'd known singing. this, we were in Tokyo together for the Olympics. If I'd known this pre-Tokyo, I would have hunted down... A karaoke bar. Well, they are famous there, I guess, aren't they? There. Pardon? They are famous in Tokyo as well. well that's where they're from, aren't they? I'm not sure. Check Wikipedia. Anyway. It knows. <laughs> anyway, why are we in Tuscany, Greg? Uh, well, first and foremost... We're not in Tuscany. We're in Cortina. No, we no. were in Tuscany yesterday for a yeah. different interview. So, uh, why are we in Cortina? Uh, well, first of all, I think it's, it's an interesting, isn't it? We, we decided we're going to do this podcast, and now I have become a guest on the podcast and it Which feels is so unusual because you don't like talking about yourself <laughs> <laughs> no but it's a weird thing now as well because i sort of i move myself even though i've very recently been involved in another sport i still i don't know i've moved myself away a little bit from it in my head i don't know it's, it's a weird one now what from being on the on the answering end of this scenario you mean well yeah the person asking the questions because we've been speaking to some amazing people and i now I, I see myself differently again, if, mm. that, if, mm. if you know what I mean. So then to, to sort of retouch on, I guess, my sporting career and things that may or may not happen in the future. <laughs> um, so as you mentioned, so we're obviously in Cortina. Um, and in four years' time, there will be, or just under four years' time, there will be another Winter Olympics. I don't know if famously, but I recently at least tried the bobsleigh. 
and with success it has to be said relative success yeah i mean look the ultimate goal was of course to go to the olympic games in beijing um it didn't happen for a number of reasons but the the the, the possibility of potentially pushing myself to maybe go to one more olympics it, look it's still there a little bit <laughs> it's still there and i've learned the skill of bobsleigh now um so it makes life a bit easier i'm not desperately trying to understand the sport which I did in the nine months leading up to the Beijing Olympics. And the team is changing a little bit. Lamin will retire. Our, our driver, Luke Dawes, who was in there as well, he's now starting to drive. Um, and, and Sam as well. I mean, like, a fantastic athlete. Sam Blanchet, is, he's just, yeah, great rugby background, great bobsetter as well. And, and there's, again, there's the, the, the spine of a team there, potentially with me as well. So. Yeah, potentially. Don't give, us, don't give us potentially, Greg. Are you going to go for the next Winter Olympic Games <sighs> here in Cortina? I think I probably will. This is the thing. Like, I, I, I struggle with putting my family and friends through the stress that I do because there, there is a lot of stress that comes with being involved with sport. But there's also this still desire to just keep pushing myself. Um, and I think now, as I say, I've di I know the skill. I can do it. And I did it well when I was doing it, apart from the injuries, which hurt quite a lot um, it gives me an opportunity to maybe push myself again I, look I know in probably after the, the next Winter Olympics the chance of me being able to do any more sports is probably over I'll be too old um, I'm already battered uh, so the, the idea is maybe and this was always the idea I guess when I came back into sport use what's left in my body to see if I can make it in a sport one more time and then sail off into the sunset you're in not going <laughs> Yeah, what's left of your body though? That's the question. You've got a herniated disc in your neck, you've got multiple hernias in your stomach, you're still recovering from a fractured shoulder. Why on earth? Why on earth would you go through all of that again? Well, when you put it like that, I think maybe I should just not bother, eh? <laughs> um, no, it, it's really difficult for me to put my, my finger on why I want to. Look, I, I love my new career and what I've been doing, and I, and I thoroughly enjoy it. But there, there's always... Don't worry, we'll still hang out. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, but there is a thing, I'm trying not to be mean. Like I'm uh, no, throw I know, mean I know, you're pausing you, but I'm not gonna, for a second. I'm not thought, gonna, am I going to be the person I am off <laughs> microphone or am I going to keep it up? No, keep being no, nice. No, I'm, I'm a nice person. Um, <laughs> Just not to me. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it's one of those things that, that there's always time for me to do other things as well. And I still train. I, li I like to train because I like to stay fit and healthy. I'm currently unable to train due to the injuries that I picked up predominantly through bobsleigh um but with time once i recover once i'm back out again why not like and th this is the big thing look, look a lot of people work out why on earth are you doing this and there is the the, the big side of it is why not if if, you, if i said to you all if i said right now right so for anybody who who listened to mark cavendish talk we found out that uh, orla is a two-time <laughs> irish triple jump champion two-time which you're very proud of. I'm very proud of you. Mark was incredibly proud. Yeah, he was a little uh, bit more gracious, I have he, he to say. Was, but... We're all very proud of you. Everyone listening is very proud <laughs> oh, of you. Oh, and it's not patronising, uh, so keep going. <laughs> but if I could say, on a serious note, if I, could, if I could say to you tomorrow, if you trained for the next year, 18 months, whatever else, you have a good chance of making the Olympic Games, you would do it, wouldn't you? Yes, of course right. I would. And it, and it was my childhood dream. But I've never been to an Olympic Games. You've been to an Olympic Games. I've never been to Winter Olympic Games, though. No, but you've tasted the very heights of success. You've done it. For me, it would be something I've never done before and something very few people get to do. You've done it. You've ticked it off. Well, you yes and no. I mean, it, as I said, I went, look, 
my, my second Olympics, I became Olympic champion, right? I didn't then go at that point, oh, that's it, me done. I don't need to worry about anything anymore. I can move on and leave it. You always want to achieve more and you always want to strive to better yourself. And then I went to Rio, of course, that was the last Olympics that I competed in. And then here we are. And I, I sort of thought after that, career in sport was finished because my world was long jumping as ridiculous as it is and I say to everybody I ran in a straight line and I jumped into a sandpit it was a ridiculous lifestyle but I loved it I loved everything about it and I loved what came with that the mental and physical pressures that come with professional sport now what a lot of people also think when we talk about these sorts of things is they think oh, I just can't let it be like he's, yeah. he's he's desperate to go back to those glory days and, and you know what it's not that as such because fundamentally with regards to, to the bobsleigh, once I really got into it and realised, I, I understood that winning a medal was going to be very, very difficult, but I started to appreciate the difficulties of just making an Olympic Games again. Now, during my, my long jump term, I, it was all about winning. Like, everything was about winning, and, and that's all I ever wanted to do. My mindset from a, a young age was going to Olympic Games and winning it, and, and everything about it was that. So with the bobsleigh, at first, of course, I went in and I thought, you know what, maybe we have a chance here, you know. And then you realise that actually it's not... Well, the team that we had that wasn't going to happen, sadly. Um, so, going forwards, again, I sort of feel like, well, look, if I had the opportunity to, to go to another Olympic Games, and look, if we put the team together and the full, because it only six guys you need for it, because we, we have to have a couple of reserves, we can get a really good team together. You never know. Because you never know in professional sport. You say, why not? And I've listed the why not. The herniated <laughs> disc in your neck, the hernia, the fractured, the fractured shoulder. I mean, I'm sure it would be a wonderful thing, but what intrigues me about you, and, and I know it's not that you just can't let go of it, but you, it feels to me like you constantly need a challenge. You need to put yourself out there and, and prove to yourself what you can do. Yeah, Where thought, does that come from? That, yeah, that's a fair assessment. Yeah, I mean, it, it will no matter what I would do. And look, once my sporting life is completely over and I know that my body can't do it anymore, there will obviously be things that I will challenge myself. Now, I go on holiday <coughs> to Phoenix and Arizona a lot, right? And there's a reason I'm getting into this. I'm not just saying I have these great holidays. And there's a, there's a mountain in the middle of, of Phoenix. You've got Camelback Mountain. And I love hiking it, right? One of my best friends, Steve Lewis, lives out there, former pole vaulter, former British record holder pole vaulter. was my roommate for years. We used to travel the world together. And we go out and stay with him, and we, we hike it. And then very quickly, Steve's been retired a long time now, very quickly turned into power hiking. So how quickly <laughs> can we do it? Then with the likes of your Stravas, your other apps that track whatever you're doing, all of a sudden, then you're competitive with people. And th there is, of course, there's something there and there's something within me that likes competing. I enjoy competing. I like the physical and mental challenges of competing. But equally, what I would say is that I'm very good at turning it on and off. So I can turn on being competitive with things that I know I'm good at because, well, I want to be better at it and I want to be good at it. But equally, if you're better at something than I am, which we're looking for at the moment... <laughs> Um, and, and you, you'd have to get a dig in. Rock, paper, scissors, well, but keep going. Yeah, well, yeah, we, yeah. well, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> um, but with, with, with those sorts of things, I'm very happy to not be the best at things. And I think a lot of people, again, with, with sportsmen and women that they've ever met, whatever, they think everything has to be a challenge. And you know, people are like, oh, I bet you, you eat your dinner and try and beat your kids and all that sort of stuff and whatever. And it's like, no, because I'm very happy in my day-to-day -day life. I'm very comfortable with who I am as a person. And because of that, I don't have to be competitive all the time, but if there, somebody challenges me, okay, I'll be competitive, of course, which you have found out, Orla, um, and certain <laughs> to other To my detriment, several times. <laughs> and, but most of the time, 
I'm relatively extroverted in a lot of situations and I love talking to people I've been involved but if I go into a room of people I don't know and I can see there's some dude who would have been a professional football player if it wasn't for the knee injury that he sustained at 16 um, and he's trying to you get a lot of that and you're, you're trying to they're, they're trying to alpha the room as it is I'm very happy to be very quiet I don't feel I have to prove anything whatever else I just I'll have fun or whatever else but I'm very happy to let other people crack on take the lead and do whatever so I don't have to be competitive all the time yeah but that's also easy when you're in a room that is there for you and you're there discussing an Olympic gold medal what I'm intrigued by not even so much that competitive nature because I have it as well and it's why I keep trying to find something I can do <laughs> that you can't and I haven't found any yet but it's that you set yourself or you're planning even to set yourself even bigger challenges and and publicly you know is that I was sort of half joking with you in the flight over yesterday and I said, do you just like the attention? Are you craving the attention? <laughs> Are say, you though? I would say craving the attention. <laughs> Look, it's, of course, it's very nice when people remember the, the physical things that I managed to do and, and push my body and, and do. Now, the, the big thing is, with what I did in a jumping sense now, now bobsay sense or whatever else, is that there's a massive story that comes behind that and generally it's a lot of pain, a lot of anguish. I failed many more times than I ever succeeded. So then when you do succeed, the feeling is unlike anything else you could ever wish to feel. A bit like when the bells go off, it's perfect timing. Right? <laughs> just sets quite, the scene quite profound. <laughs> just think now the, the pigeons to fly up. Um, no, but it, it is, there's something about it that it's, it's incredible. And people see the moments you stand on the podium, etc., and they're the moments that everybody remembers, and that's amazing. And then there's that medal that's given to you and it's the tangible thing and it's all of that's incredible but obviously for me there's always the memories of of overcoming adversity generally and i think that's something that my brain and body is just very happy to to sort of maintain and, and go with and look, what comes with that is of course attention at times it's not like i, I don't crave attention that is i just like pushing myself i i like uh, do you know, maybe there's a, there's a residual, now we think about it, you know, this is turning into therapy. <laughs> I like it. So maybe there is residual, and look, probably chatting to Mark, it makes me think of Mark Cavendish, this is of course, who, who we've had an amazing conversation with. It's still trying to prove people wrong in my way, but it's not as, it's weird for me. I don't have to prove anything anymore. Like I did it and I was very happy, successful with it. But I don't know, maybe it's just like, I like throwing myself throw myself into the gauntlet if you like and, and just testing myself and I love that people think I can't do things so maybe that's part of it I don't know it's not an attention like, I'm very happy to sit at home quietly or walk around in my garden look after my chickens dogs whatever else but you're not no, no but you're not no I am from time but then equally I have to then push myself for something be that with training be that with a, a challenge be that we're, we're covering an Olympic Games together as, as we did in Tokyo and all of a sudden you're hearing in your ear you've got seconds until you're about to go live you don't want to bugger it up, basically. Like, that's always the thing. But those pressure moments, I absolutely live for them. I love it. I love the idea of things potentially going wrong because I also know, probably deep down, there's people at home that wish wish that I get it, I do get it wrong and wish me wish, wish me ill. Do you think that, though? Or do, yeah, you, yeah, do you try yeah. to look that up? We asked this of Mark Cavendish. Do you try to seek that out to give you something to fight against, to, to feed your chippiness, if you like? I think probably with everybody that we've... we've spoken to and discussed with this whatever there is a level of trying to prove people wrong I think within your life when you are on that sporting route because people have different agendas or people want other people to do well you're always trying to prove somebody wrong and then maybe that is difficult to let go of I don't know because 
the, the other difficulty you have, and again, every guest has, has had to experience it, is that, that that situation of everybody's looking in at what you do and everybody has an opinion, good or bad, and you always remember the bad ones, probably a lot more than the, than the good ones. You'll have exactly the same, you know, by Twitter, whatever else. Um, you, everybody, no matter what walk of life you're having, you're, you're, you're at work, you've done an amazing thing, and then somebody makes a snarky comment. The fact that you've had... 20 people tell you how amazing the job was you go home at night and you think about what that one person said and that's that's always I think what's going on that's something that, that sticks with you and lasts and something I also found fascinating years ago when I, I said I was going to give the skeleton a go which I did give the skeleton a go skeleton Bob and I thoroughly enjoyed it I remember putting it on Twitter then that I wanted to go give it a go and it was amazing the response that I got from people just going how dare you think that you mm. can give another sport a go stick to long jumping all that sort of stuff whereas in America where I spent a lot of time and I speak to Americans they love it mm. they love the idea of you challenging yourself and giving it a go and they'll back you 100% until you fail and there's something about that which I really like and I think that's surely how you should a a approach things but I think the way we are in the UK means that we aren't willing to challenge ourselves. We're not willing to push ourselves. And actually, on one level, I'm happy to throw myself out there and absorb any crap that comes with it for it going wrong because it doesn't bother me too much. So if I, if I succeed, I'm proving what I think is possible for everyone. I think no matter what walk of life you're in and what you've done, for other, it's, we've been within sport, business, whatever it is, I think you can try new things. You can challenge yourself. I think for a lot of, a lot of people involved in in the world of sport in particular the careers may not go how they want it they may end early they may have injuries issues whatever else there's something else you can try and don't be afraid to try that and that's what the bobsleigh was for me as well i knew there was a risk it could fail i knew people would love it if i failed as well but i was happy to give it a go because again why not do you see your bobsleigh journey then as being a success or a failure? You wanted to get to the Olympics, you wanted to get a medal. Yes, that, that, I'm still processing that now, to be totally honest, because the irony of the whole thing is, even if we did qualify for the Games, I wouldn't have been able to have gone because of my neck. Mm. So it would have been a massive double-edged sword of, of so happy that my friends had made the Games, but knowing that I wasn't there due to the fact that I'd got injured. Um, I believed I could make the Olympic Games, 100%. I believe I'm physically gifted enough to make the Olympic Games as a bobsetter, 100%. It just wasn't to be, and there's multiple reasons. And, and this is always the other thing as well. You're relying on other people. Our team changed dramatically from the first competition through to the last. Um, and I think if we had the team that we had at the end, plus maybe a couple of the other guys as well, that would have been a solid team that would have made the Olympic Games. Um, so that's also there as well. But I don't know, you're, is it a failure? On one hand, yes, because I didn't. The goal was to go to the Olympic Games. I told everybody I could make the Olympic Games. I didn't make the Olympic Games. So, yes, I failed in one of the core <laughs> aspects of the challenge. But what I did do in nine months from not being an athlete anymore, I became an athlete again. I made the British team. I competed on the World Cup circuit, the highest level below the World Championships and the Olympics. And I was in the team. So I, I, I achieved, I proved within nine months I can go from a very unfit former athlete to being an international athlete again. See, this is where you really impress me though, because this is the problem with setting any kind of a challenge, whether it's in the public eye like you are, or for most of us just doing it in front of friends or families or colleagues or, you know, even saying to people, I'm going to go for a promotion. Most people will not say that because if they don't get that promotion, it will be seen as a failure. Not 
by themselves necessarily. But the fact that you that you even took so long to get to that answer, yes, it probably was a failure because you've taken from that everything that you have learned as you've gone along. And I think that difficulty for most people in taking the positives out of not getting their goal is so difficult that it stops them from setting the goal in the first place. Yeah, massively. And, and I, I, I still think that I've been very lucky to travel the world and I really feel like it's just a terribly British thing to, to be concerned about championing yourself and backing yourself. But most people will be living, you know, a lot of people listening to this will be living, for example, in the UK and they'll be surrounded by that. So, you, so yeah. you can't really escape it. You've got more of an international life, I guess, or more international experience and friends and whatnot. But how do you get out of that? How do you get out of that way of thinking when everyone around you is thinking like that? You have to start believing solely in yourself. That, that is the big thing. Look, n nobody else is going to back you. And I found this very early on yeah. in, in sport in particular. So once you back yourself 100%, look, I believed without any form of doubt or question at times in my career, that I was the best in the world at that time. And I went in with that level of confidence and belief, and that's why I won, because I wasn't the most talented. Uh, I wasn't the great, oh, it's a fact, I'm not the greatest ever long jumper of all times. But I was so mentally strong, and that came from taking so many knocks, but just having a belligerent belief that I will have my day, I'll have my moment, and I'll, I'll prove that I can do it. And I appreciate that's very, very difficult to do. but. It's what? so hard to do but, to keep but, every time you get knocked down and knocked down and knocked down. You think, okay, you, maybe it's maybe it's time. Maybe the universe is telling me I've got to give up now. I've got to try something no, I, else. I, I, look, fundamentally, if you're trying to be an astronaut and, and <laughs> like you're, you, 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 you're rubbish or whatever else that sort of stuff, I don't know. Like unrealistic goals, of course. Like, I, I appreciate that. But look, most people get into a vocation life which they love doing and they can progress in and whatever else no matter what that is if you find some form of enjoyment within it you you do have to back yourself 100% when you are doing it because look it's not easy I, I have a bit of an issue if I'm totally honest with the way sport is perceived in schools in particular now I, I, I feel like sport is, a, is an incredible way of teaching you how to win and lose okay and what we're seeing now and I from when I go speak in schools my children obviously at school etc this there's no longer there's no desire to to champion children that are good at sport anymore it's it's all about again i think that's education. quite a british thing i live in the netherlands and competitive sport is huge for kids yeah so maybe it is a british thing now and what we're, what we're teaching children in my opinion now is that oh it's okay everybody wins well yeah, done yeah, yeah, you, yeah. well great to be there and yes of course it is that mass participation uh, participation in sport is incredible and but i want got to learn to lose to you have to learn to lose and you have to give children the opportunity to feel that you shouldn't mother them at left right and center and I, and I feel especially some of the younger generation that are coming through that i speak to now as well this it's as if everything they, they, they should win at it rather than actually working at it. And I speak to young athletes. Now, I can't obviously speak to everybody in, in business or whatever else, but I speak to young athletes. And the, le the, the, the level of, well, of course, I, well, I should be getting this or I should be earning that or I, or I should be in this competition. And you think, in the short amount of time from when I retired, it's completely changed. The, 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 the mindset has changed. And I think that's coming from a young age of being told everybody 
is a winner, everybody is equal, etc. When you're not, when you go into the big wide world, you go for that, that job interview with 20 other people and there's one job. Only one person's winning on that day. Mm. And that comes down to the best credentials and maybe if the face fits, whatever else it might be. But you have to work hard at things. You have to fail. You have to pick yourself back up. But you have to back yourself. If you don't back yourself, you won't achieve what you want to do. And of course, there are going to be so many times when it goes wrong. Mm. And this is what I was trying to get across with my career. Look, I love the fact that now people remember me becoming an Olympic champion and world champion and whatever else. But my first Olympics, I finished 10th. My last Olympics, I finished third. In my first world championships, I finished 23rd. It was seen as a success in 2009 when I became, well, I finished fifth and became the, the highest ranked Brit in a long jump. because very niche. But it's <laughs> one of those things that you, I lost far more. But what I always did is backed myself knowing that at some point or hoping at some point, I would have that that moment because you have to you have to be slightly belligerent with it and look of course if it's causing you severe severe stress strain or financial difficulty whatever else then of course look, who am I to say you've got to stick with it like if you've got to support yourself and a family whatever else then of course maybe there's you have to move on but you have to be prepared to lose it's one of the biggest lessons in life. You lose, you, you learn so much more from your losses than you do the wins. See, this is so true. And I feel it's so easy to say, and it's sometimes even easy to listen to if you're not losing at life in that particular stage. But losing at anything is so hard. Believing in yourself is so hard because as a species, we want, we seek approval. We need approval. We need people to back us. How on earth do you, or is that something that you're maybe born with, that belief in yourself? But how do you, how do you build that up whenever things are difficult or people are wishing you to fail? I think probably from that point of view, so, and this goes for any walk of life, surround yourself with, with the right team. Mm. You, you want to find a team, and that can be friends, family, whatever, work colleagues, the whole lot. Now, look, in a business sense, it's very easy. And I do a lot of keynote speaking when I, when I talk about it, and I can compare sporting teams to, obviously, business teams. Because what you find is that <clears throat> if you put a team around you to try and achieve an end product, an end goal, if those people around you are there to, to help you thrive, then you're, having a, you're in a great position in order to do it. Of course, they have to be qualified. I mean, don't just bring your mate from school into, into your, your banking business that can't count I mean like that's not gonna be good but of course you create a team and you hire and fire to, to create a team that can help you flourish now you have to be prepared have to no matter what to make sacrifices to that team now in a sporting sense that for me meant getting rid of friendship groups meant getting rid of coaches physios whatever else bringing in the right people being associated to the right people people that can help you flourish I was very very lucky I, Dan Paff in 2009, one of the greatest coaches, not just track and field, just movement coaches in the world, came to the UK. He was brought in to try and help British athletics because we were struggling. I got a chance to work with him. I'd always wanted to work with him. Without Dan Paff, I would never have won a major title. But I was, had to remove the team that I had around me. I had to say goodbye to them. I had to get into Dan's team. Physios, the whole lot changed everything because I knew 
and had belief in that team as well. Their, their CV, if you like, spoke absolute volumes. I mean, Dan Paff was Donovan Bailey's coach in 96 when he became world record holder and Olympic champion in the 100 meters for Canada. I mean, he's worked with some of the greats, Tiger Woods, Maria Sharapova, whatever. So many in different sports to help them develop and become great that of course I felt that that was going to work and it wasn't always easy. I mean, the first year or so, it wasn't great. We, I sort of went backwards, but I believed so much within that team. And you obviously, of course, mentioned we as human beings love being championed, love being built up, love being told that we're doing well, but equally you have to have the people around you that are telling you when it's not going well and have to help you figure out what is going wrong in your life because it's very difficult for one person to, to unpack everything and move forward with it because you will always be hyper self-critical. I'm massively self-critical of everything I do. I appear on, we ever do any work together and I'm always looking back going, oh, you look like an idiot. <laughs> My God, I hate your voice. There's probably a few people you, here. Is that me? Yeah, that's just <laughs> me. Yeah, yeah. I'm great, I'm great. Um, no, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm my worst critic, right? I'm my harshest critic. Like, I no think that's a good thing. tomorrow. Of course it is. But equally at times when I'm seeing something that's awful or I perceive as awful, others will look at that and go, well, don't be stupid. And that's the flip side of it as well. I'm hypercritical because I want to be good and I want to succeed and I want to better myself. That's how I saw my career as well in sport. And people like having Dan Paff, Jerry Ramajita, my friends and family that I had around me, they were all people that, that helped me rather than were a hindrance. And I, I take, again, drainers, like everybody will have a friend out there who's a massive drainer. Yeah. And, and it doesn't matter if you're in sport, business, whatever you're in. If you've got those drainer friends around you, they bring you down. And it's genuinely hard. And I had that. I mixed but with people. how do people. you cut them off you without just, being ruthless? You have to be ruthless. No, I'm sorry. Like it, it, we, At times we're so nice to our own detriment. And I would like to think, I'd like to think, well, you can tell me, I don't think I'm a relatively nice person. You are, you right? are. And, and, and I, I, I never look for any form of drama in my life. I just want a nice, comfortable, enjoyable life <laughs> with people I like spending time with. But fundamentally, especially when you're growing up, I used to surround myself with not the right people at all, bad people at times. And I had to basically walk away from that. And when you're 18, 19, and you're walking away from quite strong social groups that you've had, course it's difficult now I was fortunate because I moved into athletics I made new friends etc etc but you have to take those 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 risks you have to take those steps because for that that friend that they might have you might have cried in their shoulder when you were 17 and your girlfriend boyfriend or whatever else is split up with you if they're just taking everything away from the rest of your life distance yourself because you, the way I see it look, you have one life look, and irrespective of what your belief systems are and whatever else it's great I, I like to lead my life as you, you have one opportunity here, right? It's not a test run. So if somebody is, is negatively affecting your life, you have to be prepared to distance yourself. You don't have to say, like, I never want to speak to you again or whatever else. But distance yourself enough to help yourself flourish because there's nothing worse than feeling down on multiple days and having people around you that, that feed that bad energy. You want to put people around you who help you flourish. And, and I say that, that's, every, that's every aspect. It's trusting your gut on that as well, isn't it? Oh, I've God. had to do that with so many people through my career, for example, not necessarily so much friendships, but knowing that if you think somebody maybe isn't in it for the right reasons, they're probably not. And being strong enough in yourself to, to deliver on that. Oh, massively. Look, you know you more than anybody yeah. else, right? People love to tell you what you should and shouldn't do and how you are, etc., etc. You know. And if your gut is telling you that something isn't right, and be that at work, sport, whatever it might be, 
once that, that, that doubt sets in, and I've had it again with coaching staff, whatever else, once the doubt was in there, it eats you alive and you have to get out. You have to find an exit strategy because otherwise it just, it, it brings you down and it's no good. Because we're not islands, are we? And it's really interesting that you say that you've got to back yourself, you've got to believe in yourself, but that doesn't mean you're doing it by yourself because you're surrounding yourself with a team of people. No, so I, it's I, not about just relying on you necessarily, is it? No, I, I stood on top of a podium winning an Olymp Olympic gold medal. It wasn't just me. Dan was in the crowd. He had helped me do it. Friends and family that had supported me the whole way. Jerry Ramajita, my, my physio who was through that period, had done so much to help me. An incredible man. I had all these people that had influenced me in a positive way to get to that point. My roommate, Steve Lewis, who I mentioned I go to Arizona with, Andrew Steele was my, my closest friend, another 400 meter runner from, from, who competed in Olympic Games and won a medal himself. Like, I surrounded myself with people that wanted the best for me, were happy for me to do well, but equally when I stepped away from the track, it wasn't purely about athletics. Mm. Had other things that we could talk about and do. And that for me, I wasn't just winning an Olympic gold medal for me, I was winning it for every single one of them. And those moment, the moment when you, the tears come and the, the understanding of what's going on, etc. It's not just, you're not going, oh yeah, I've won, well done me. You're remembering every single moment that you shared with those people that mean so much to you. And they gave up their time, they, gave, they put in their effort in order for you to succeed. Because, as I say, for every single person that stands out now, and every person that we've spoken to that's been successful, and every person who listens that's been successful, it's never on your own. There is always somebody there that's helped you. And, and it's a lovely thing when you get to share that moment with them, be that afterwards, whatever else but to know and to appreciate the people that have genuinely helped you get to where you are. How difficult a lesson was that to learn to share toxic relationships? Because I've spoken to you about the friends that you mentioned now, and you mention them a lot just in general conversation. You clearly trust them a lot. You rely on them a lot for lots of things. But how difficult was that to get to the stage where you're surrounding yourself with the right people? Yeah, it's very hard because what you obviously always find is when you would have had this massively, you would have had people that you haven't heard of from years who want to now get in contact. Oh, yes, all I saw you presenting the, the sport on TV. Blah, blah. And Give you, me Greg's you, autograph. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Has that ever happened? Not yet. Oh, not okay. yet. Bradley's. <laughs> no, that's not true. That's not true, actually. I have been asked recently. I'm, Two days ago, I'm actually, joking. a friend said, Oh, you're hanging out with Greg Rutherford. Right, Can anyway, you introduce us? I don't think really <laughs> But yes, you can. Um, no, it, it's no, but you do have it, and you start to really look. Getting old is a great thing, of course, and and having experience and becoming wiser is a is a is a great thing. Look, I wish I had the knowledge that I have now when I was twenty, of course, and I think do most you of though? Us do. Because then you've learned from mistakes as well, surely. Without question, if at between eighteen and twenty, if I had the knowledge that I had now, I'd have been a multiple Olympic champion. Without question, without question. Because I would have joined Dan Path earlier, and I would have been even better. But then your life would have gone in different directions, wouldn't yeah, of course, it? Those look, sliding look. doors moments. Yeah, of course, and and that's something that you never. Know. I don't know what that would mean for the rest of my life, but mm. athletically, that would have been incredible. But equally, of course, there's parts I don't want to change my life as well. You see, yeah, and it is a weird one. But but that is the that is the. But if I had the knowledge that I had there, not saying that I want to. Assert, I don't know. It's a weird thing, mm. but. Yeah, I mean, sportingly, I would have been far, far better. I'd have won far more stuff. I mentioned sliding doors because last night over dinner, myself and you and, and producer Pete, as we call him, um, we're talking about moments that that maybe have shaped our lives and could have gone one way or another. And I was fascinated, and Pete was fascinated by 
the version that you told of, of how you think your life could have gone so very different. Yeah, look, as a kid, I was a complete prat. Um, <laughs> and if any person that went to school with me or whatever else listens to this, they'll go, yes, he was. Um, I would like to think I was a very, very different person when I was younger. I was rebelling against so many things. I had so much going on in my head, which was very difficult for me to deal with at times. And because of that, I would do stupid things. And I went to school drunk a few times. I'd like you went to school drunk. Yeah, a few times. Like I'd go on benders for a few days. From the night before, or from that morning? No, that like all different times, depending on what was going on. Um, I was disruptive in class a lot when I was a kid. But we just, I think as well, I, I was I was obviously acting up because the situation as well. It was, I just obviously wasn't clearly massively happy. Um, but equally there was like an edge to me where I felt like I needed to push myself to, to do stupid things. And I, I did stupid things. And we obviously, I know what you're referring to because I explained <laughs> to you something that I used to do called car surfing. And horrifies yeah, the, me. The, the thing is having children now, if I heard that one of them did the sort of things that I did, I would lose my mind. But I was just a prat. I was an idiot. And, and I massively regret them. But I had this moment. So I used to do a thing called car surfing, like we're saying. Explain and what that is for, for most people who hopefully have no idea. I, I hope mean, most it's self-explanatory. No but don't, yeah, go for don't it. Don't do it. I'd like to think now people are far more intelligent than they were. I'm hoping anyone who listens to this 2000s. podcast has maybe <laughs> screwed on enough to... I hope so. So yeah. car surfing involved sometimes me, sometimes me and a mate. Um, laying on top of a car, just holding on to the side. So you'd have the windows down. You'd come around and hold on basically to the tops of the doors and the driver so you'd be lying flat on the top and holding yeah, on so what one head, hand so on each side chest down yeah ha, ha, basically trying to hug the car and then looking head forward of course over the um window screen and the car is driving so now. your head is hanging where well it's sort of there at the edge right so um and you're just obviously looking forward now the car accelerates now the car that we predominantly used to do it in had a sunroof and whatever else so the driver could obviously see you and things and um, we'd have the sunroof open as well because it's another thing that you can sort of try and latch onto if you need to and you accelerate and you drive we used to do it down these country roads funny enough really close to where i live now uh, very close in fact and we used to do these stupid things challenge ourselves whatever else bunch of lads in a car just being idiots basically but i had this moment and it's a genuinely profound moment because I, I, people always talk about out of body experiences and even though I think, like, you're an idiot. Like, some of the things they talk about, you know, it's not an out-of-body experience. It's what they're <laughs> talking about. And I, I'm not sure how much I still even believe they are a thing, but it sort of happened to me. So we're, we're whizzing down the country road, 40, 50 mile an hour, whatever it was. And all so of So I guess you must have been about 17 if your mate was driving or... No, no, he was older. I've, right. I've got an older brother. It was one of his friends. So he was older, so I was a bit young. So I was 15, 16, I think, maybe. 16, 16, 17. Yeah, so, yeah something around mm. that, around mm. that, yeah. Yeah. Good, good, yeah. Um, we're looking forwards and I'm seeing this tree in the distance. I'm sort of looking at the tree and I've now suddenly become fixated on the tree. And I'll never forget it. I've frozen, but I've frozen because in my head, all I can see is myself coming off of the car, hitting the tree. And a, and a career that at that point nobody knew I'd have, I didn't even know I'd have. But that career not happening because... I very, very badly injured myself by hitting this tree. And it, it, it was like a weird moment of panic and freezing. And I suddenly just in, intrinsically in my head, I was just sort of saying, you have to stop. You have to stop that this isn't going to end well. And we've done it plenty of times before, never had an issue, whatever else. But it was as if 
that was the realization that what I was doing was stupid, which people might think, well, of course it was stupid. <laughs> it was a ridiculous thing to do. But this moment, as I say, I, it, was, it was as if I was witnessing the career that I've had way before I'd had it or the opportunity of the career that I could potentially have. And I, I screamed through the sunroof once I came back to again, like, stop, 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 I need to get off, need to get off. Got off the car, and of course, it was like, way, wimp, whatever <laughs> Stronger words were used. Yeah. Um, and you sort of try, like, <clears throat> try and laugh it off a little bit. But I never did it again. And I never did anything like that again. I never did anything stupid like that again. I stopped entirely, and I started to, within a year or so, I'd probably moved entirely away from, from that social group of doing those sorts of things as well. And it's a stupid thing to do. But without that moment, I don't know. Maybe, maybe if I would have carried on, I would have come off the car and I would have hit the tree and I may have died. I may have become paralysed or whatever else, which is what I feared could happen because I was doing something unbelievably stupid. Unbelievably stupid. But there was just something inside me at that time where there was a bit of a, maybe a bit of self-destruct going on as mm. well and I just wanted to do stupid things. And it was just not a, not a, not a good thing to be doing. Do you have a self-destruct tendency? Do you have a button that you flip every now and again? Look, I like a bit of danger in my life. And I like, I think this is partly where the bobsay stuff comes from. Maybe where sport comes from as well, because you are so exposed. You're so vulnerable at times. But there's a part of me that, that kind of likes that as well. And it's, look, we're in the mountains. Now, what people find, because like, I came from a really working class upbringing, but bizarrely, we skied as well at times. So every few years... Um, I then worked at the snow zone in Milton Keynes um, and I love snow sports, I love being on the slopes and I, I'll come here and hopefully I get a chance to ski while I'm out here and I'll push myself and I'll push myself probably to speeds and to whatever else that are quite dangerous and if I was to fall and whatever else I could get quite hurt, badly hurt but for me there's a, there's a desire to feel alive in, in that time and push myself to I get something from it which you can't get from everyday life so when I have these moments I want to enjoy them and equally, in sport, you have these moments because you're not always 100%, the stress, whatever else, but the idea of pushing your body to a place where I know others probably can't ever go to because there's so much that comes in. Look, <clears throat> when you step on the runways, track, whatever, whatever sport you do, often you're not 100%, often there's issues. In the Rio Olympics, I had a torn groin, I was in unbelievable amounts of pain and I had to overcome something but there was also there's a sick pleasure in doing that as well because I knew no matter what happened now I, I also knew if I didn't come away with a medal from that Olympic Games I'd have got absolutely hammered like utterly destroyed and I was devastated with the bronze medal now I look back I'm not but it, it, there was something about that challenge that also excited me so there's always been something there of risking myself my reputation whatever else to find that thrill a little bit it's weird, to, it's hard to, to, hard to explain. No, I understand it though. And I think it, what interests me is that I think ours comes from a very different motivation. So I have anxiety and, and I think sometimes I seek danger as a displacement for certain physical feelings I might have where I seek, if I'm doing sport, I love to feel that burn because then there's no room for anything else in my head. And it's interesting when you say about feeling alive, you know, I feel like once you like, open yourself to the world then there's no room for anything else but I don't think that comes from a place of darkness from you necessarily or maybe it does I guess if there's danger involved there's always a darkness is there I don't know now there's always just been something about me that just wants to push myself as hard as I possibly can and, and equally when it comes to training whatever I'm training for if I'm just trying to make myself physically strong or whatever else I know the things that I feel often other people 
can't get themselves there because I know that there's a there's a, a, a mental side of professional sport in particular where you have to force your mind and body into places where it's it's horribly unpleasant, horribly unpleasant. The, the levels of pain, in the Rio Olympic finals, I say the pain that I felt was horrific. Imagine having a torn groin and, and I'm trying to accelerate up to 11 plus meters per second and then take off on a board which is going to cause about six, seven cubic tons of pressure and force going through my leg, the takeoff leg which had the tear into my spine, everything else. And I know at any moment, if I get the angle slightly wrong, the whole thing can completely unravel, which is something that did have, I had to have my groin reconstructed in, in 2017 due to it basically coming away due to jumping and things. I mean, these are the stresses and strains, but equally, don't shy away from that. There's just something there, but I don't know. I don't know if there is. There's, look, I would say I'm quite lucky. I, I think, apart from at times hating the sport and, and everything else, there's not been too much darkness in my life, in my head, which I think does obviously fuel certain people. And, and I think some of the people we've spoken to as well, that there really has been some genuinely harrowing experiences. I don't think I've had particularly harrowing experiences, but. I think all of mine just stems from a desire to better myself, everything that I've come from, etc. And knowing that for me, if I push myself to those absolute limits, I've given myself every opportunity to succeed and hopefully do something special. I find that fascinating that you say that it's not so much from darkness and you haven't had dark experiences and you use the word lucky a lot. You say how lucky you are, but you didn't have an easy upbringing and, it, and there are things I think that you've lived through that maybe would, that would bring on darkness in people's heads. But are, are you just, is that just, um, is that just, a, it's such a difficult question to answer because everything is so subjective. We only live our own realities, but is that just the way you're made, do you think? Whereby I feel like you've got this sort of, sort of steel shield inside your head that sort of protects you in a way from things. I don't know, none of us are ever invulnerable, but... Yeah, look, yeah, you touch it. Look, when, when I was younger, first thing everybody sees when they look at me is the fact that I have ginger hair. And I know it sort of sounds ridiculous, but I was quite heavily bullied in, in my primary school. Um, it was something that wasn't pleasant at all. And I think that that was obviously the start of where my chip came from massively. Yeah. Um, the fact that all I had, I'm not the most intelligent human in the world. I'm very happy and comfortable to accept that. I know it's fine. I'm not book smart and whatever else. That's absolutely fine. You say that all the time. You're very clever. No, I, no I, I'm, look, I, clever's debate. I'd say I'm relatively street smart, but I'm not a particularly, I don't know, I'm, I'm not all that clever really. I, I like history. <laughs> know a bit about that. And I'm not bad at maths. Yeah, you're good at, you, you, you corrected my maths earlier very quickly. Um, I can't remember what my. But I know, again, but it, it's, when I was a kid, it was difficult for me because like, I had a very religious upbringing. I was brought up as a Jehovah's Witness, which was quite difficult at times. Um, I was then- And you're not a Jehovah's Witness? I'm, I'm not, no, no, not at all. Um, I was then, obviously, the ginger hair and, uh, basically it was tough. And, and where I always found an escape, even from a young age, is the fact that I was always faster than everybody else. Like, no matter, where I went, I was always quicker than everybody. Like, that was the big thing I had. And that's why I do sport, actually. If it wasn't been for the fact that I was fast, I wouldn't, first of all, I would never have been a long jumper, but second of all, I would never have tried and taken the sports to where I took them in order to become and find long jump, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. But what was difficult as a kid, and it's, it's, a, it's a brutal psychological 
battering that I used to take from the other children would be that the only way I could ever prove myself, because I, I was never very confident as a kid as well, it was... Far, I, I'm, shaking, so, I'm shaking my head just for, this, for the benefit of those listening to the podcast. Because far from it. I've told you before, you're, you're one of the most confident people I've ever met. And in a natural, in a natural sense, I find. And in a, and in a no, positive I, sense, whereby you do believe in yourself. I'm confident in myself now because I'm just, I'm, I'm happy with myself. Mm, mm. I know who I am, what I, what I am, etc. And that sits fine with me. And, that, and that, that's it. I don't worry about probably things that I used to worry about. But as a kid, I was not confident at all. I, I, and, it, and I really struggled with that. But the one thing I had was that I was quicker than people. But what then would happen is that my way of trying to prove myself would be beating everybody in a running race. But the, the batterings of what children are like, because they're brutal. Children are brutal creatures. Mm. Is I, I mean, I'd win a race by five, ten metres, whatever it might be. And they'd go, no, you didn't win that. So-and-so won it. And you go, what are you talking about? <laughs> and it was a level of injustice mm. that you, you just... What you, but I clearly won. And it was no, there, was, there was never an allowance or an acceptance of me, of who I was when I was a kid, because I was different to everybody else. And because of that, the, the, the torment that I felt from it was just horrendous I hated it and I hated them and I hated did you hate them did you hate yourself no I hated them no no because the thing is I think and that's maybe where my resilience started to come from with my own physical abilities I say I was never the smartest boy whatever else at all but I knew physically I was gifted and I knew I was faster than them I knew I could do it there's a picture of me as a child in my nursery running a running weight race it's about 20 meters and I'm about 10 meters in the lead <laughs> like it was clearly there like I was a physically gifted boy but when your peers won't allow you to because they won't allow you to be good at anything and it was, it, it was horrible. It was genuinely hard. And I used to just cry constantly because I, I couldn't get rid of that frustration. And there was other frustrations in my life that developed. And, th and it was just when you can't get rid of that frustration and, and that, that anger that you feel, it can manifest itself in, in bad ways. And then I'd end up fighting with people and doing that sort of stuff. And it's, it's just because I felt as a child, I was never accepted, never accepted for who I was and what I was. And then... <laughs> that then I become quite comfortable with what I, what I am and then become a sportsman and do that sort of stuff and then within the world of sport it then felt often at times that I wasn't accepted that I think a lot of people deemed me not good enough to be winning the things that I was winning why did they I, really or did you we've talked about this before but no definitely look, I, I, most people that would commentate on the sport and around in the sport whatever else could not understand why I won just couldn't get their Why? head around Why could it. they not understand that? If you're know. winning, though, that's going back yeah, to know, the primary but, school. But and it was always, and this is where I say, so other people, that I, I'm not lucky in sport from the point of view of ability. I know I was good, right, and I was good. I was mentally stronger than any other jumper in the world for the period of about five years. That's why I became so successful in that time. Why do you believe that and how can you judge that? Because I know I was, because I, I, I could beat somebody in a cool room. I already knew it before I, my world championship final in 2015, I went in there as probably third or fourth long, longest jumper in the world at that time. It was all about the Americans and which American's gonna win it. In my head, I'd already won it. And I knew because I could see, because when these guys are warming up, they're looking at me. And I developed a thing as a young, at a young age, 19, my first ever major, proper major, European seniors, where I won a, a medal. And I remember sitting in the cool room, looking around, and this is really cool, and smiling, and I was, and I was sort of looking around like really happy. Everybody else is like, re like sort of there going, this is, this is really stressful, why are you smiling? And I could see them looking at me like, 
What does he know that, that I don't? Eyes. And it was. And I was like, <laughs> relaxed. I was just sort of sitting like this. <laughs> little did they know. Little hey, Greg what? was sitting there going, I'm living my dream. Yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> but what I saw with that is that there was this level of sort of stern. Like, you, you think of like a Maurice Green. Right? Mm. Okay, so and a lot of people think of sprinting. Of course, you're saying Bolt now. But Maurice Green, the old-fashioned way, because I came through obviously the same time as Bolt. The old-fashioned way was to be walking up and down, strolling, sort of. It struck, there was this like this look and the moist green his tongue out and it was always just this level mm. of like I don't know, aggression, mm. if you like. And I very quickly saw if you don't do that and you're the other way, which famously the, the greatest track and field athlete, sprint based anyway of all time, had the greatest time of his life every mm. time he competed. By doing that, it unnerved people. So I knew as I said, I'd stay, I'd be in the cool room, I'd be happy as Larry. And I'd be smiling. I'd be like, right, mate, how are you doing today? How's things? Feeling all right? I'm just having a chat. And they're standing and they're there. And they're going, what the hell? Like, what is he doing? And you could see at first, yeah, I'm, I'm all right. Yeah, fine. Thanks. Yeah, right. yeah. How's it been going? Haven't seen you in a while. And I'd just chat. And there was a few of us that would do this because I think maybe we were confident. And, and it, some of the other guys maybe didn't win because in that period, as I say, it was I was predominantly winning those competitions. But that, that was a level again of self-confidence and belief and I would watch them. I'll never forget the World Championship final. One of the guys did something like 10 or 12 run-throughs, full approaches on, on his run. Now, what you do when you get into any competition, you do a few practice run-throughs about the jump at the end. Two or three, and you're, you're sort of, you're, you're killing yourself a little bit, mm. so you need to be very careful. So I'm going to take 10, and every time they're looking at me, trying to like figure out why is, he, why is he how he is? What do I need to do? How do I beat him? And that, for me, I, I knew. And he was one of the, the main contenders. He was the person that actually most people thought was going to win that World Championships. And I knew at that point I'd beaten him. Where then did that confidence develop from? You say that you were bullied heavily at school. It doesn't sound like you had many allies in all of that. And, and, and that wrecked your confidence. So where along that journey did the confidence come from? And I'm thinking of anyone, you know, sitting at home and, and lacking in that confidence. How do you teach yourself confidence? You find the moments which back up your theories. Okay. So for me... Which also actually, is in, that can work in the negative as well, can't it? Well, of course, I mean, yeah, I mean, if your theories are terrible, then yeah, Yeah, but what, sorry, what I mean is that often when we're, when we're wallowing, we're picking the negative events that reinforce our belief that we're terrible or we're not good no, enough we, or somebody doesn't like us or whatever. But you're saying maybe turn it around and, and choose the good ones. Yeah, so, you, so look, fundamentally everybody wants to win, no matter what you do in life, you want to win. Nobody walks around going, I want to be rubbish. Nobody does that. See, I think, I think some people... No, almost... okay, even if a child, maybe if it's developed into that, and, and again, I, I always feel incredibly sorry for anybody who really struggles with that. And I know, mm. I know people that do struggle with, with not believing their own worth, but that, I think it's, it's for, for a large portion of, of people, there is a point in their life where they wanted to win, they wanted to succeed. And it doesn't mean sport, it can be absolutely anything. And sadly, yes, of course, for some they lose that. But when you're in professional sport in particular, and maybe business, whatever it might be, and you are looking to work your way up and, and become very successful, if you have a belief system that maybe others don't, but you know it's the right thing, because again, you're listening to that, that inner voice, that hopefully the positive inner voice, you find these little moments which prove that you're right. So, for example, when I joined Dan, being one of the greatest coaches, as I say, in the history of, of sport, people in the UK, because they hated the fact that I joined an American, mm. gave me so much stick for it. And they wanted me to fail. And they, they did want me to fail. Other coaches, a lot of British coaches and things. Um, 
and I believed in it. I wholeheartedly believed in it. And then there was these glimmers where I'd go to a competition and I'd catch something and I'd win the competition or I'd finish in a higher placing. Now, 2011, the year before the, the, the Olympic Games, obviously in London, I went to the World Championships and it was the first time that I genuinely believed I could win a medal at a World Championships, become the first British long jumper to do so. And that came from the fact that there's these little moments where I would start to win things. I remember coming back and winning the Prefontaine Classic, which obviously over in Oregon, one of the really famous um, athletics competitions. And I won that. And that moment of winning that, when it was quite difficult, I, had to, I think I went from eighth to first place in the final round, whatever it was. That backed up that on the day, anybody can succeed. And on that day, you can nail that moment, which means you succeed. So that was reinforcing the thought process that I had. That I knew I was look, I knew I was talented. If you go to an Olympic Games, you're talented, okay? And now every single person, whoever goes to Olympic Games, of course you're talented in the field that you go for. And I 100% believe that on the day, in an Olympic final, it's anybody's. I don't care if you're Usain Bolt, I don't care who you are, it's anybody's because things can go wrong. And it can go wrong very, very quickly. And then there's always somebody waiting in the wings to to pick up the pieces and, and go and go and become that new champion. And that's how I viewed it. It was reinforcing the fact that I knew I was good enough somewhere. I just needed to see these moments. So I, I, I clung on to these moments like no tomorrow. Now, the World Championships 2011, I went out in qualification with a pretty much ruptured hamstring. I had to come back from that again. Now, for anybody who knows my sort of competitive story up to London. It was just dogged with injury the whole way. I had to keep overcoming these real lows and real genuine lows in just me as a person and, and hating jumping at times. But again, this is where the team for me became so important. So friends, family, whatever else, they rally round you to again help keep that spark alive. And I just believed that I could be the best at some point. I just had to stick with it. Have you used that in your post-competitive life then or outside of, of athletics in particular? Because I sometimes think in a way, although you guys obviously work incredibly hard and you put yourselves out there literally in front of a stadium of people that you, that you could fail in front of, but it's almost easy in a way to judge success and failure. It's a very measurable life choice, if you like. But have you done that since when, for example, I mean, these are all very public things, but when you went on MasterChef or, you know, Strictly Come Dancing or moving into broadcasting, though, you know, th things that are that are not in your comfort zone and you don't know if you're any good at. Have you used that technique there to say, well, I'll look back on that but and, and think, oh, I made a good miss that day so I can cook or whatever it might be? Yes and no. So what I took from my sporting career into now the wider world, if you like, is my ability to turn my hand at things and work hard at them. Mm. and for me it was obviously training when I was an athlete and then when I've then moved into other things that has been dedicating myself to that period of time to become good at something now look Master of Strictly was a very difficult I was rubbish at it <laughs> I tried really hard this is why I wanted to dance off and with then, you I think I might beat you in dance I don't know you've got a lot of energy but I don't know <laughs> I feel like I might have, might have kept the odd secret move <laughs> Who knows? Um, but no it, it's one of those things that so Master of is a great example for me I worked incredibly long hours to become as good as I could at that because I, I went into it not really knowing an awful lot at all. And everybody expects that they give you loads of help on the show. None. They give you no help. It's up to you to go and develop and learn. So I spent every waking moment that I was at home and I wasn't in the studio 
practicing and that my mindset and it was very easy to flick it back and it was as if I was training for a competition again because I had to do this I had to put in the work because if I wanted to have a good outcome you have to put the work in this is the other big thing often you put a lot of work in and it takes a lot of time to do it but if you're not putting the work in, you're not going to succeed mm -hmm. that's the big thing so it doesn't matter what you do I've managed to take that work ethic that I developed as an athlete and put it into everyday life now when it comes to say broadcasting now I knew from 19 when I retired that's what I wanted to do because I watched what happened around me and when I was being interviewed and I found it amazing from the person working the camera to the sound person to the person asking me the questions the whole concept of what they were doing I found fascinating mm. so whenever I had an interview I would always talk as much as I possibly could because I wanted to be around it. I'd <laughs> shut up most of the time. And I think that's just a, your life, I've got though, a really. Of, well, that's true, yeah, as everybody's finding now, uh, again now. But it, it's, it's something that then when I did, I want to work, I want to learn. Now, what I find fascinating, absolutely fascinating, is if I'm presenting, covering the Olympic Games or something like that, and I say to somebody, how was it? What could I improve? first reaction you get and you've probably, you, you'll get this all the time mm. it was amazing it was yeah, great yeah, yeah. And you're, okay look you're, you're far more professional than I am anyway, <laughs> so you are amazing great that's great but for someone like myself it's not useful it's, I, no I can't I, yeah. can't, I yeah. can't I hate it I hate being told when I know that I'm not the best at something yeah that it was great and it's perfect, whatever. Because you it's need not. something to work on. You, no, but it, you can't also go through life just being told that everything's mm. wonderful and great because if you're not you're never going to work on your flaws so again have the confidence in understanding that you have to learn at things you have to have to be, and be to humble ask. enough i guess as well, well. just willing to ask questions about of course that just because i was good at jumping into a sandpit doesn't mean that i'm going to be good at talking about it on tv as well and i appreciate that probably some people listening go you're not good at it pal <laughs> um which is absolutely fine but for me it's it's a desire to learn and challenge myself and as we were talking about earlier stress myself in these situations which i know some people would hate the idea of because I know at times there's potentially millions of people waiting for me to stumble over a word or waiting for me to say something wrong or whatever else. And I love it. Yeah, the terror of live television is so hard to beat. Isn't it's, it? it's the best feeling. <laughs> yeah. And there's nothing like, because we, again, we've, you've lived it far longer than I have. But when you step away from it, the, the high fives that go around and, yeah. the, and the fist bumps and everything else when you go off air, you've been super professional and done everything. It's the greatest feeling because you've nailed something again. And it's something that is quite hard. And for me, it can give me a similar thrill to what I faced as an athlete. And I think that that's why I want to keep doing it as long as I possibly can. That's why I enjoy doing it. You mentioned hard work and you've mentioned your mentality. If you were to take the ingredients of success, where would you rank hard work, the right mindset and a natural talent? What's the most important thing, do you think? A lot of people have talent in the world. Um, it's understanding how to utilize that talent. Now, I think the other misconception that we, we have to move away from, which is, is very difficult at times for people to understand, is that you don't have to kill yourself in order to succeed in life, right? So you don't have to work yourself to the bone. You don't have also, to... Also, it's contraproductive, surely, it is. isn't it? We need to move... You're totally right. Our society has become so focused on that and working and beasting ourselves as hard as possible. At all times. And the, the bizarre rhetoric that... British athletes had for a period of time, which I, during my career, which was, well, whatever the others are doing that who are winning, let's double it, and then we'll become even more successful. I mean, it's, it's utter madness to think that just by absolutely slogging your guts out, you will have success. Something I've talked about a lot, and, and 
myself and again my best friend Andrew Steele we, we sort of talked about it so like, it's, it's something we refer to as like life and performance right so if you can find that balance between having a a relatively happy life now that means indulging in some of the things that you want to indulge in right so if there's something that you're interested in spend time doing it spend time not doing the thing that is your life as such but something that just enriches you so there could be whatever it is so you might like painting model tanks I don't know whatever it is but do that no not massively no, okay. I, I get really frustrated with paint like when I paint a wall <laughs> drives me nuts why so, it's I a terrible example oh, I can't do it oh I love it I find it no, so therapeutic no because I'm, no, I'm a perfectionist and okay. if I see any form of anyway yeah <laughs> whatever it is find that balance between what makes you happy and what also challenges you as well because once you're happy in your general life and once you are allowing yourself to have these moments of of effectively switching off and indulging what you want to do then when you go back to the thing that you have to work hard at it becomes a lot easier because your brain is focused you're you're ready you feel physically and mentally refreshed enough to go back into it so something for me during my career I was really into coffee me and Andrew got trained as baristas back in 2012 after the games because I love coffee I like reading about coffee I like making coffee all of those sorts of things and I know it's a bit sad equally for me history is a massively important mm. part of my life I love watching the History Channel, Discovery, whatever it will be, predominantly Discovery. Um, and for me... It's Very good. You've got a long career in broadcast ahead you. of you. Um, and it's something that I love, that I know little things about history or whatever, because it's something I enjoy. I don't have to go around telling everybody, but I like it. I like, I like being in a place like Cortina now, and I like looking around and imagining the people that were once here and imagining what it took to create this and what it was like 200 years ago or whatever and thousands of years ago etc and because of that I'm stepping away from the stresses and strains that may take up large parts of my life and it refreshes me into a feeling of I can go back into that and I can work damn hard at it because I know when I switch off I can help myself so finding that life and performance mix is so incredibly important and genuinely Life is stressful. It genuinely is stressful. No matter what you do, it's stressful. No matter what your job is, it's stressful at times. So find those moments and find those things that you enjoy to put a smile back on your face. And then when you go back to the things that are stressful, they're that little bit less stressful. And that's a hugely important thing. It doesn't matter if you're stepping in front of 80,000 people in an Olympic final, stepping in front of your boss to pitch a, a new idea, or just getting out of bed in the morning. Whatever you find difficult in life, find the things that make you smile so it makes the difficulties that bit easier. And it's getting very late here in Cortina. Not very late, but the sun's gone down. It's getting very cold. I'm cold, it? yeah, I'm not going to yeah, lie. Yeah, I know. Cold. I can see you shivering, <laughs> which is why, though, when you mention your love of history, it brings me nicely to the last thing I wanted to ask you, which is you say about things being built 200 years ago, whatever it might be. I always think, or often think, I guess, anyone who achieves any level of greatness in life, they often do it because or a part of it is that they want to be remembered but obviously 200 300 500 years time your name might still be on a book somewhere or you know digitally as having won everything that you've won records whatever ultimately none of us will be remembered in the grander scheme of history is that a liberation or is that something that you fight it is what it is really look from my do you point want of view, to be remembered do you need to be remembered I don't know if I need to be remembered, to be totally honest, I think it's nice at this point to be remembered for doing that physical thing that I worked incredibly hard at and had all the stresses and strains like I've mentioned. Now, yes, that, that's a lovely thing to be reminded of, but look, when you're not here anymore, it doesn't matter. 
Look, the, the, the most liberating thing that I found in life is that fundamentally the stresses and strains that I have don't matter to everybody else. Mm. And as big as they are for me, and they matter to me, of course they do. But in a hundred years' time, nobody will care. And in a hundred days' time, probably completely, even. and probably I won't care mm, as well to certain mm. things that, that are stressing me out today. And once you start thinking about that, you can start, I think, opening your mind a little bit more as well, and actually just start taking things in and enjoy mm. it. And as I say, for me, I, I take a I, look. We are in the mountains, right? And I, and I have to say, I, I get like a le an extra level of energy from being in the mountains. Something about being in the mountains now. I was brought up religious, as we touched on, and a lot of people listening will probably be very religious. I don't see myself as religious as such anymore. But what I do find, which I find kind of interesting, is that I feel myself more, a bit like a druid in a way, because I take so much from the world, from beautiful scenery, the mountains in particular, running water, all of that, that sort of gives me a level of vigor which makes me want to keep pushing, keep going, keep experiencing things. That for me is what's really truly important. And fundamentally from that, from being happy, from having this inner peace that I, I, I'd like to think uh, I have for large parts of my life, I get to put that onto my children who will probably be remembered longer than me because they'll be around a lot longer than, than, than I will. And as long as because I can find a level of inner peace, as long as when they think of me, and maybe my grandchildren, whatever it is, as long as when they think of me, they think he was a good guy, and he was a loving father and everything else, that for me is probably the most important thing that I now see as my job in life. And, and that's something that I hope more than anything else, that's what I'm remembered for, for the time that I am. Maybe, I mean, if they live 500 years, they're doing something very right. Um, <laughs> so that probably won't. But no, I'd say, like, being remembered for something is, is great. Just being remembered for being a generally good chap, I think, is the most important thing in life. Great legacy to have. A generally good chap and a big ginger druid. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go get warm. Thank you. <laughs>
Oh, that was paper from that Greg paper over a bit over of rock. rock. Here we so are. even Stevens. And this is it. This is it. This, this is the decider. This is it. Okay. Uh, oh, oh my rock. rock. <laughs> <laughs> Ready? Let's go, oh, let's go. Okay. Uh, 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 uh. Oh, <laughs> two scissors. Oh, this is oh, the best no. one yet. This oh, is the best no. one yet. This is terrible. Okay, here we go. Okay, two scissors. Ready? Ready? Go. Oh! <laughs> two rocks. Okay. Two rocks. Okay. Oh, okay, I can't here we go. go for what I want to go here for. Go. Come on. Okay, one, two, three, go. Oh, <laughs> what is going on? Oh, here? no, this is weird. Papers this is well. weird. Okay, okay. We both want paper. I feel sick. I feel sick. Look how into this you get. Oh, I can't, I can't Every stand it. Every time we do this. Because I'm preempting what you're going to go for okay, next. Okay, here we go, here we go. Okay, okay, right. Okay, ready? Ready? Okay, go. One, two, three, go. <laughs> I was going to do scissors. My hands were frozen. So for anybody listening, obviously oh. I've celebrated. That would be because um, I just won. <laughs> I just he got paper. Won. I, I, uh, my hand was frozen in rock. Yeah. I've got... um. I've got a condition. Anyway, so nobody cares. <laughs> so thank you ever so much, um, Orla. That would be me to stretch my winning. That would be me winning today. Thank you. Scissors. Well Congratulations, done. Greg. Whatever. It's not good enough to just be Olympic champion. You've got to be in rock, <laughs> paper, scissors. Only today. Only, Only today. today.